and at the one perhaps addition to it this week, maybe compared to many weeks before, and that is a different type of prayer, a prayer of intercession. It's a, a historical reformational prayer for a congregation to come together and to pray for the needs of this world. In this prayer, we pray for our civil world around us, the government, those who the Lord has commonly placed over us. We pray for the lost. We pray for the mission of the church, that the ends of the earth will be evangelized. We pray for our own church and growing in grace for Jesus Christ. And we pray for those who are sick and afflicted among us, the needs of the church. Calvin enjoyed this prayer more than any other in the worship service because it was a time when the people of God could gather together and pray for her needs. So let us now, I will not maintain the Dutch tradition I was in, which had 15-minute intercession prayers. We will hopefully be a little more abridged. I'll work you to it. But let us now go to the Lord, offering all that we desire to him. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we know that you've sent us your Holy Spirit to intercede upon our behalf. And we gather as your people, whether with quiet hearts or even loud minds, many requests for you and your kingdom here on earth. We begin, O oh Lord, by thinking of our own civil government around us. We think of those who have been elected in our own state to represent us uh, federally. We think of our senators, uh, Mrs. Duckworth and Mr. Durbin. We think of our federal senate as well with our majority leader, Mr. Schumer, and the minority leader, Mr. McConnell. We pray, O oh Lord, for all of those who represent us federally. And we pray, O oh Lord, now that you would impart them wisdom to govern us rightly. But we know, O oh Lord, as sinful men who represent sinful men, that they often err, some greater to some lesser. And so we pray, O oh Lord, that you would place upon all of our elected officials a gravity of their office, a gravity of representing us well uh, in our nation's capital. We pray, O oh Lord, as these leaders err, as they often do, that you would restrain their hands, that you'd convict their spirits, and that even now you would soften their hearts to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray and long, O oh Lord, for a nation that honors you. And we know, O oh Lord, that as representatives represent us, they often re represent their people even in their sin. And so we come, O oh Lord, recognizing their own failings and our own failings. But we pray that our nation would be represented well as it represents the eternal moral law of our God. Lord, instill the gravity of such office in our land. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you'd purge us and this country of all corruption. We also pray, O oh Lord, in, in the same idea of those who are lost. We think of those who are lost this morning in our own families, whether they be, O oh Lord, children, aunts, uncles, parents, cousins, siblings. We all know many, O oh Lord, who do not know your name. And so we pray for those within our, that are closest to us. We pray that you would soften the hearts of those whom are around us. And we pray that you would give us great opportunity to witness Christ to them. We pray for opportunity. We pray for the gospel to go forth not only within our worship service, but throughout our lives by our witness to Christ. 
And we pray that you'd use us to share Christ well, to invite our family into fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ in worship. We pray, O oh Lord, for those who are lost. But we also pray, O oh Lord, for missions. We think of the, uh, the Makalera family in Malawi as they plant reformed churches there. We pray that you bless their ministry. And not only that you bless their ministry with growth of building, but that many would come to true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many false gospels throughout our world, O oh Lord, and there is no exception of there in Malawi as well. And so we pray that you use this family to preach Christ crucified and to remedy the very false promises that false teachers proclaim there. Bless this family. We pray, O oh Lord, for the growth of Reformed churches through African Bible College there, but also throughout the country as well. We pray for our own church with this missions of mind. I'm reminded, O oh Lord, of Dr. Lloyd Kim, who has oppressed upon PCA churches to pray for 1% to go into world missions. We pray, O oh Lord, for that for our own congregation. Raise up men and women from our own body with the conviction to preach Christ, to build your church to the ends of the earth. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would be a congregation that sends out to the ends of the earth and that we would be a people that are not only concerned by the gospel proclamation here in Troy or Illinois, but also people that are concerned for even those who are most remote from us. Raise some from our own congregation to glorify you by declaring your name to the ends of the earth. And we also, O oh Lord, pray for those who are sick among us. We continue to lift up uh, Joanne Ossendorf before you uh, this morning. We pray, O oh Lord, for quick healing. We pray for her and Dan, that you would uplift them and hold them close even now, that you'd give them both rest, and that Joanne would heal quickly, and that in that quick healing she would be able to return to us imminently to declare your glory even within our congregations. We long, O oh Lord, to hear her own, her own voice singing praises to you. We long for that to be soon. Be with this family and encourage them. We also lift up, O oh Lord, the, the Bowers family. We think of Clara now as she has been struggling with stability. We pray, O oh Lord, that even now you remind her and her family of the great stability found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray also, O oh Lord, that you'd give her strength. Give her focus, not only that determination, but also give her confidence in you. Oh, Lord, you are the great physician, and you are the one that heals us. And so we lift up all of the Bower's needs before you this Lord's Day morning. We praise you and thank you for Virgil's 90th birthday coming up here. We thank you for this saint that has bore witness to you for many decades. We thank you for his service to our church, and we thank you for his leadership as it relates to singing as well. Be with us, O Lord, as we offer all these things to your glory. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. If you'll notice from a theme here as it relates to the title and the other scriptures we read, as well as the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, you see that times sometimes are tough. 
They were tough in the life of Joseph as his own family sold him to slavery, as he lived in Potiphar's house with false accusation, who then have to face his brothers. But we see in the midst of that tough time, these believers maintained a godly attitude. Joseph, I couldn't imagine saying what he said to his brothers in that text. A time ripe for revenge, and yet he hands it over to God. Or think of Paul, as we read in, in the, his epistle to the Corinthians. All of that difficulty, so much difficulty, and his response to it so pious that he appears to be a madman to all who come in contact with him. A man beaten near to the point of death. A man imprisoned, a man suffering, a man who would be deprived of much to stay alive. And yet, Paul counts it an honor to serve Christ in such a way, and he maintains a godly attitude in doing so. I want to remind you of that godly attitude as Paul suffers in prison in the book of Philippians as we read it together. Stand with me as we hear from Philippians chapter 1, picking up in verse 3. <clears throat> I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership of the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that, until, uh, that I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. You may be seated. When times get tough, it's often difficult to have a godly attitude. I am reminded in 2018 when I was tasked to take a youth trip to Durango, Colorado, the idea was that we would have a discipleship trip with skiing, or maybe skiing with perhaps part of a discipleship trip, as, as cumbersome as skiing is. And I remember as I took these kids to the slope, I was the guy that was meant to lead them there, but it became evident quickly that I had no skill for skiing. I had dabbled throughout my life in extreme sports, and I had an extraordinary hubris for what I could do on the slopes. And that turned out to be wrong. Because one of the things you need when skiing, you have to have good knees. And my years in extreme sports had destroyed my knees. And so on my third way down with my battle-torn knees, I had to stop every few yards so that they could have rest so that I wouldn't collapse over myself and roll down the hill. I remember finally making it to the bottom of that slope thinking I need a rest. The problem for me was 
that I made it to the bottom of that slope, it was the wrong side of the mountain. My condo was on the other side. And the only way there was to go back up. Knees torn, destroyed, I laid in the snow as the snowflakes sizzled on my face from exhaustion. I was low. Times are tough. It's hard to have a good attitude as I beat myself, raked myself over the coals in such difficult times. We've all had tough times. There's no doubt about it. And it is hard to see the bigger picture when we enter a tough experience. We, as we'll see here today in the Apostle Paul's work, in the midst of his own tough times, he presents the church with some great thanksgiving and prayer. In the midst of difficulty, in other words, he maintains a godly attitude. Paul is imprisoned. He has few creature comforts, and yet, in the midst of that, he has a thankful heart. He has a good attitude. Prisons were a shocking place in the ancient world. We think of our own, perhaps, federal penitentiaries. Maybe you visited prison as a visitor or otherwise, and they are pretty nice places for the most part. Of course, the doors lock behind you every which way you go, but you have a great sense of liberty maybe a surprising amount of liberty to do what you want as long as you maintain in the confines of the prison itself. This was not so in the ancient world. They were like the gulags. They were densely packed, poorly ventilated, dangerously stale air. Prisoners would often succumb to heat, dehydration. They would be places that were absent of natural light where you wouldn't know if it were day or night. You'd be chained to a guard 24-7. It would be difficult to even find sleep because of the various chains that were binding you together. It was a terrible place. You had no change of clothes. Your clothes would soon turn into rags. You'd maybe, just maybe, get a low ration of food to keep you alive. In the ancient world, you were sent to prison before trial, and many never made it to trial. That's how bad the situation was for Paul here. And the only way people made it to trial in the midst of disease, dysentery, and sickness is if somebody provided for them. The government had no social net to catch these people. It relied, they relied solely on family and friends to carry them through their terrible circumstance. And in the midst of all that, in the midst of dysentery and sickness, in the midst of having clothes turned into rags, of not knowing if it were day or night, the terrible chafing from shackles, Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. When times get tough, retain a godly attitude. When times get tough, Retain a godly attitude. We do this by, as we'll see in this text, by remembering to give thanks. In verse 3, I give thanks to my God. How do we retain a godly attitude in the midst of difficulty? We remember to give thanks, to have a thankful heart. We might be tempted to think that Paul in this passage is being merely rhetorical. Well, Scott, if you read all of these epistles of Paul, there are thanksgivings littered throughout. He's being rhetorical. It's just what you did. 
hey, this is the Apostle Paul, thank you. But there is much more going on in this passage than mere rhetorical thanks. We get details for what Paul is thankful for with these believers. And we are reminded elsewhere in the book of Galatians, he doesn't always give thanks. Sometimes there are congregations that don't deserve thanksgiving. Those foolish Galatians. But here we see a very intimate thanksgiving. What is Paul thankful for? What is he outlined? Because of your partnership for the gospel. The idea of partnership means close association, fellowship. In Jackson, Mississippi, every day as I went to the school, we passed Quinonia Church. That's the word here. Fellowship Church. It meant close association. It's the idea of two friends becoming business partners. Their entire lives at that point become intertwined. The success of one friend is dependent upon the success of another. When one fails, both fail. There's a deep, close, and intimate partnership that Paul addresses with the Philippians. And there are times when one partner in that partnership would come on difficult times and the other would have to elevate them. That's what Paul is dealing with here. How did the Philippians elevate Paul? Well, if you fast forward to chapter 4, he says this. This is what he is thankful for. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received Epaphroditus with the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. What is Paul thankful for with this church? He is thankful that they have kept him alive. It's not only the monies, it's the supplies. It's the extra change of clothes. It is sending Epaphroditus to be an aid to Paul as he suffers. Paul is truly thankful. He's not rhetorically thankful. Not, not a nice, uh, I'm doing fine, that we would say in our own time. He is truly thankful. They funded him. They supplied him. And they cared for him. And because of that sacrificial work of the Philippians, whenever Paul thinks of this congregation, he thinks of great joy. Because they have met his needs. You know, Paul's not living high on the hog as he's in prison, but his basic needs are being met because of the labors of this church. And every time he thinks of them, when they, every time he sees Epaphroditus, joy comes to his heart. For they have cared for him. That's what you see in verse 4. In every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayers with joy. Every time he prays, he thinks with great joy and fondness of this church. If it were me writing this letter to the Philippians, I would probably begin by airing all my complaints. The food you sent just wasn't good enough. These clothes that you sent that were once new are now raggy. We tend in our own spirits to our own sin to complain first and become thankful later. But not so with Paul and not so with those who have a godly attitude. We come with thanksgiving and joy. What are some things that give you joy when you think of them? All of us have them. When I was a boy, I enjoyed Wisconsin Dells. 
I don't know if you go all the way up to Wisconsin from these parts of Illinois, but that was our family trip. Every year we went to Wisconsin Dells, and in the deep recesses of my memory, even as I talk about it now, I am well overwhelmed with joy. I don't go to the Lord in prayer over Wisconsin Dells. I'm not that joyful, I suppose. But my mind recalls the ball pits as a kid that I'm now too large to get in, the water parks, those duck boat things that were both land and sea traversal machines. I'm reminded of all of the Dells. My, my happiest family memories as a boy were at the Dells. So whenever I think of it, even as I drove through it a couple years ago, and it's looking a little ratty now compared to my childhood, at least as I can remember, I'm still overwhelmed with joy. Paul has a greater sense of joy that is sparked within his heart when he thinks of the Philippians. And that joy leads him to prayer. He leads Paul to giving thanks to God for these people. They have cared for me so well, Lord. I thank you for all that they have done for me. But not only that, he doesn't focus on the self in these prayers, as we'll see later in this passage. He then begins to pray for their needs. Imagine being handcuffed and awaiting trial and then praying for others. Maybe expect everyone to pray for Paul. But what does Paul do? He doesn't pray for Paul. He prays for the church of Philippi. And he prays for the whole church of Philippi. The people that have done well in the ministry, the people that are struggling, even for uh, Iodia and Syntyche who are at a personal dispute. He does not omit them from his thanksgiving. He is even thankful for them. He is thankful for the whole church of Philippi, those who he loved, those who he struggled with, those who were in the midst of petty division. He was thankful. He's thankful despite the circumstance. When times get tough, we, remember, we must remember then to give thanks. That's the whole purpose of this first point. Remember to give thanks. To retain a godly attitude, we must be a thankful people. In the midst of difficulty, as times do get tough and they will, those who do not become curmudgeons are those who are able to give thanks despite what they are going through. It's difficult for me and probably for you, but it is a good godly reminder that we are called to give thanks for the basics. Give thanks for the food that you eat, the jobs that you have, the children, your family, your friends, your church. Even when some of those areas seem to be up in, a, in disarray, give thanks to those you partner for the sake of the gospel. When times get tough, they are often worse than when we fail to give thanks. In one of my counseling classes in seminary, one of my professors, uh, tongue-in-cheek, said, you know, for every negative thought you had, in order to balance that out, you need 10 positive thoughts. And there might be some valid thought to that. But nevertheless, negative thoughts, just generally, weigh our heart down much more than our positive thoughts. We sink lower and lower when we get in negative feedback loops within our own mind. We sink lower and lower. But for those who are thankful, that is the way out of that death spiral of despair. Thankful people retain a godly attitude. Reminded of the Mayflower as it sailed that ocean blue all those years ago. Had 102 passengers on it. I don't know if you know this, but 45 of those passengers were dead by the first Thanksgiving that year. 
and it is always astonishing to me that they had something to be thankful for. Every family of that ship knew death. Some, their own children die, some, their own parents, and yet we all still celebrate today a Thanksgiving meal every year. Thanksgiving that the good Lord has granted them and us survival. And even in the midst of mourning, those great Puritans as they sailed directed themselves towards God. We have a rich heritage. And so when times get tough, retain a godly attitude. You do that by remembering to give thanks, but you also do that by remembering God's promised work. And I believe we see the promised work of God in verses 6 through 8. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul continues his thanksgiving by reminding himself and the Philippians that God will complete his work. This is probably a favorite verse by many of you in this congregation. I know many memorize such a verse as this, and it's very easy to internalize individually. Uh, but Paul isn't necessarily, though it is all true, the Lord will complete his work of salvation for those who call upon him. There is a larger, broader meaning to this one verse. It is a corporate meaning. The idea of God bringing to completion his work in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ is that the Lord will complete his mission. It's an encouragement. It is sandwiched between verses 5 and 7 as a reminder to God's people that he will complete what he has set out to do. Yes, maybe individually that applies to you being a believer and him redeeming you for all time. But even greater, it is bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth and bringing that message of salvation to all people. And that on that day, that day when he returns, his mission will be truly complete. And the Philippians have a role in that. We, as Providence Presbyterian Church, have a role in that. That doesn't mean we'll live forever as a church. The Church of Philippi knows that all too well. It's no longer in existence, but we have a role in bringing to completion the mission and work of Christ. The mission is greater than us. It puts into perspective our role in this world. In the midst of tough times, we miss the forest for the trees. We begin to focus too narrowly on our own lives that we fail to look beyond it, to see the big picture, the big picture of mission, of Christ's mission, of Paul's mission. As the Philippians support Paul and Paul supports the Philippians, the mission of Christ will be completed. We'll see this completed in Philippi through their ministry, but the Philippians, as they support Paul, will see it to the ends of the earth as well. You see this detailed, this great work of mission in verse 7 when Paul says, I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. He will bring to completion his work. We must remember that in order to retain a godly attitude in the midst of difficulty, we must remember that God has promised, he has covenanted, and he will complete his work. It may not be how we imagine. It may be much more difficult in this life, but he does give you that seed of promise, that seed of hope in order to remain godly in the midst of difficulty. He will complete it. Many of you have visited my new home, and you see much work 
to be done as I do every time I step in those doors. There's a lot of projects that are half started. Many have not been started. It's far from completion. And I'd be a fool in the midst of the painting, unpacking, the burn pitting, the lead testing, the bed building, the electrical rewiring, to promise to my wife that this will be all completed. It'd be a fool's errand for me to complete every project in that house. I certainly don't have the skill, pastor hands here, I don't have the skill, but I might not also have the power or authority either. Some things will be left unfinished in our house, as in your own houses, but not so in the Lord's house. He brings all of his projects to completion. The gospel, as it goes forth, it will be effective for those who he calls to himself. But notice, even as it goes on, this completed work, not only will God complete his work, but God will be a witness to his work, to his love, to his service. For God is my witness, how I yearn for all, for you all, with the affection of Christ Jesus. The Lord is his witness. We know that term of witness all too well in the context of courts. And he is saying, basically vowing to the Philippians, you know my love and you will know it intimately when you see God himself. For he is the one that bears witness to my love for you, how I long to be with you. Providence has made it so that I cannot be with you in this moment, but know that I yearn, I long to be with you, to continue the work of Christ to the ends of the earth. This is perhaps also in view of what Paul is currently dealing with as he waits to be put on trial. God is his witness. As Nero sentences him to whether life or death, the one who would stand behind Paul as his chief and primary witness would be God himself. He'll be vindicated, whether in the eyes of Nero or not, probably not, as corrupt as Nero was, he would have the best witness on his side, God himself. God promises to complete his work here. I don't know what that looks like, and neither do many of you, but we are called by that great promise in this passage to become partners of Christ in his mission. It creates a godly attitude. It is forward-looking. Sometimes in the church, and perhaps even here, as we look at the world around us, it is easy to slunk down in a state of sadness. But not so with the church. We are triumphant in the Lord, and we can retain hope and joy and even future accomplishment as the Lord completes his mission in us. But we can also, even in the midst of our own personal difficult times, and in order to, for us to retain this godly attitude, we must remind ourselves. We must remember God's promised work. We must look back at what he has done in our own lives to draw us to himself out of the pits of despair and sin to himself. Seeing all that the Lord has done, even in the midst of our own trials, our own tribulations, knowing that, yes, the Lord has been faithful to me and my family. He will bring his work to completion because he has promised it. When times get tough, retain a godly attitude. Lastly, I want you to remember to pray. Yes, we must give thanks. Yes, we must remember the promised work. But finally, we must remember 
to pray. In verse 9 it says this, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. We are reminded in the beginning, Paul starts this letter hoping to build unity within the church as there has been disagreement there. And he believes what can unify this church in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a prayer that love may abound more and more. The church wasn't dealing with theological schism. They weren't dealing with errors found within the church. It was personal problems. It was people that couldn't agree on the side stuff. It was about the color of the carpet, where we're going to meet for worship. It was about how my business is more successful than yours, and therefore I should have more power and weight within the church. It was that kind of petty squabbling. What overcomes it? Love. Love may abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment. For these believers to grow in love, they must learn to love. They must learn to discern. In order to have a greater capacity to love one another within our own body here, we must grow in knowledge. We must grow in discernment. Otherwise, our capacity remains superficially low. You all have capacities to enjoy your hobbies to great delight. Some of you have no capacity to enjoy other things. I think of modern art. I have no capacity for it. I've visited many museums hoping to grow an appreciation for modern art. But to me, as I walk through those halls, it all just seems so silly to me. It, it, there's no order. There's no beauty, in my own opinion. You all, you know, I'm going to get some questions after about the connoisseurs of modern art here. Remember one exhibit of a CRT television at one of these places in Chicago, and the person on it was crumpling up pieces of paper and shoving it in their clothes. And I thought, why? I have no capacity for it. And maybe after today you can teach me to discern good modern art from bad modern art. Or maybe you agree with me and you say there is no reason to have a capacity for modern art. But in order to grow in love, our capacity for love has to grow. And that growth comes through knowledge and discernment. You have to be able to discern. You have to be able to know what is excellent in order to learn to love. And where this love comes from, though it's not uh, outlined very explicitly in the text, as, as you know, it's from God himself. I was reading a, a Puritan earlier this week, and his main call as I was reading this devotional, was to run to God. He says this, As for believers, it's so adequate for what we're talking about, never be discouraged from growing to God. Humbled as we ought to be, this is a place, there is a place for humiliation, but there is no place for discouragement or calling God's love into question. A son under God's anger is still a son. And though Satan presents him to God angry because of his sin, yet he ought to lay hold of the rich mercies of God in Christ. How do you learn love? How, how do you learn to discern love? How do you learn the knowledge of love? It is coming to your father and learning it from him. Our children learn how to live from us. They emulate us. They mimic us. And so to the Philippians, as Paul admonishes them too in learning love, it is to run to God himself. Run to the father. 
and is my prayer that you would do that so that you may glorify and praise God. In the midst of difficulty, we must be a people of prayer, and we must know what to pray for. And Paul prays for this congregation that they would grow in love, that they would grow to appreciate one another more and more. None of that fake familiarity, none of that fake love, but true, genuine love so that the fruit of righteousness might grow and well up within the body. I don't know about you, but I can be obsessed with myself. Why haven't I been loved well? It's about me, myself, and I. I can tend to saturate my mind with how people should pray for me rather than how I should be praying for others. I can think of how terrible everyone else is and how great I am. We are slow to love and slow to pray for one another. But when times get tough, it is revealed our prayerlessness, our lovelessness, by how our attitude changes for one another. Instead of mercy, love, and love, there's contempt and anger. Instead of grace and peace, there's division and slander. In order to retain a godly attitude, we must remember to give thanks. We must remember God's promised work, and we must remember to pray. It may seem kind of odd that believers, despite the most difficult circumstances in the scripture, are called to retain a joyful, godly attitude. In the midst of Paul being shipwrecked, beaten 40 lashes minus one, he can maintain joy and thankfulness. But maybe you're face down in the snow. You've come to church today with a, rot a dirty, rotten attitude instead of a godly one. You wonder and you gaze up at the sun on that snow-filled hill and wonder, what have I got myself into? There is no hope. There is no escape. This difficulty. Well, for you, the promise is this great reminder in Scripture that as you gain upon Christ, you can learn better to have a good attitude in him. That in this life, we are reminded that he, in his death for us, grants us great life, eternal life. And in that life, we can have joy. Whether that means we die shipwrecked or in a, a gulag-type prison, whether we are successful in this world or not, we can have true, thankful joy. We can be different than the world around us. And if, you're no, if you do not know Christ today, you might wonder, why, why would Christians ever have a godly attitude in the midst of this world today? Why would they ever be joyful? Why would they ever be thankful? Why would they ever look to God's promises that seem perhaps at times broken? Why would they ever pray? He doesn't seem to do much. Well, we are reminded in the scripture also at the end of the Gospels of God's great work in our lives. And the great promise for you today, if you do not know Christ, is that even in the worst that life has to offer you, there is great comfort and hope for you today. Whether you have rags on your back in prison, or you are doing well off in suburbia, there is great promise and joy that we can have in Christ. You hear his voice today, do not harden your hearts, but call upon him, and he will enable you to enjoy this great godly attitude, even in the midst of difficulty. Let us close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, would become sin for us. 
Oh Lord, may we be a congregation that wells with joy, that wells with thankfulness, that has sights for your great promised work, and that is a people known for prayer. It's in your name we pray. Amen.